Good morning, everyone. So good to see you this morning. I want you to know that the Comeback Committee has been discussing the next phase of what we're going to be doing here, and it looks like if things keep progressing well, July the 1st, we will get back to a new normal. I say a new normal. I don't know that we want to get back to the old normal, right? Hopefully, we've learned some things and we've filtered out some things. So July 1st is a Wednesday. That is our summer series and our SOS program. That'll all start in earnest July 7th, like we or July 1st. If we keep moving in that direction, that's all going to start July 1st. And then that following Sunday, July the 5th, we will be back together without spreading out and uh, without the restrictions. And uh, we'll get to worship together like we did before. Um, the intent was always to have one worship service during the summer and then pick it back up when school starts back. So we will be in the auditorium all together until uh, August the 16th, I believe, that we'll start back with our two services. So looking forward to that. And again, we'll be giving more information about that as we go along. But I'm excited. We have a date in mind. We have a target, and I hope that we can hit that. So Appreciate you being here this morning. I know it's different, and I appreciate your compliance and your willing to be patient and go along with what we're doing as we ease back into being together. So let me shift gears a little bit and ask you, what is the weirdest gift you've ever gotten? No matter what it is, I doubt it compares to any of these. You know what this is? This is a pimple popping toy. Yeah, it exists. It is a quiet, satisfying version of bubble wrap. Yes, you, I don't know if you got one of these for Christmas, but it's an actual toy. How about this one? This is a selfie toaster. So you, you uh, egotistical folks that want to eat your breakfast by looking at your face on a piece of toast, you can have a selfie toaster. Here's another one. This is the ostrich pillow. You actually stick your head in and your hands and you can lay down on your desk, you can enjoy a train ride, plane ride, burying your head into a pillow. Here's the last one. These are um, cat ears that connect to your brain waves, sorta. You put them on, you allow them to calibrate, and you can kind of make them move by thinking about it, supposedly. I don't know, I don't have any. <laughs> Chances are, of all the weird gifts you've ever gotten, none of them compare to these. You know, every year we have to answer the question after Christmas, so what did Santa bring you? Try describing this to someone. Oh, he brought me a pimple popper toy. A what? And then you've got to try to explain that, and the chances are you can't very well. There are a lot of gifts that are hard to describe. Nothing greater, of course, than the gift that is Jesus Christ. We find in Scripture things that are hard to describe, like the virgin birth, Luke chapter 1, verses 28 and following, it reads, And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And after acquiring more information, Mary responds, How will this be since I am a virgin? It's hard to describe. Jesus is the pre-existent Son of God who was with God before the world began, who created the world with Him. And we read in Timothy's epistle, Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. That is heavy stuff for sure. 
even though we read it and somewhat understand it, it's still hard to grasp. Jesus' words were also indescribable. In John chapter 4, or excuse me, chapter 7, we see the officers being questioned by the chief priest and the Pharisees as to why they didn't bring Jesus to them. And notice their response. No one ever spoke like this man. After Jesus calms the storm out on the sea, his disciples marveled and said, What sort of man is this, that even the winds and the sea obey him? In John chapter 9, we find this man who had been blind, and suddenly he could see again. He was healed by Jesus, and the Pharisees questioned him. They questioned his parents, then they bring him back in to interrogate him even more. And finally, he gets fed up and says, Look, I don't know who the guy is. All I know is I couldn't see before, and I can see now. In other words, hard to describe. His death was indescribable, although Isaiah tried. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He died a substitute. He endured the wrath that we deserved. And he did it all for enemies of the cross. Why? Because he had a love that was indescribable. The love of God is greater far than tongue or pen can ever tell. It goes beyond the highest star and reaches to the lowest hell. And certainly, his resurrection was indescribable. Science doesn't have a formula for it. Some say, yes, but other people died and came back to life, like Lazarus and the widow named son. But they also had another funeral and another coffin. Jesus never did. When he left the tomb, it was, good. It was once and for all. No more did he return to it. Those who believe in him will live even if they die. It's impossible to fully grasp the implications of all of this, at least on this side of eternity. So it's no wonder that Paul said in 2 Corinthians 9 and 15, thanks be to God for this indescribable gift. How do you even describe the gift that is Jesus Christ? And I know we try. We use words like redeemer and savior, propitiation, atonement, all those kind of things. But in the end, it is so hard to grasp and describe the gift that is Jesus Christ our Lord who was immeasurably rich in heaven took on flesh and became poor so that we might be rich through his marvelous and matchless grace my mother died in January of 2014 and on Christmas of that year my dad gave me an indescribable gift he gave me this three ring binder which may not mean much to you but inside of it are notes and cards and letters that my mother wrote to me. My mother and I had a very tenuous relationship. It was very up and down, off and on. But this contains the good stuff. The stuff about her that I want to remember. I can tell you that my dad gave me a notebook. I can tell you what's in it, but it's hard for me to describe what it means. I mean, you could never appreciate it like I do, right? I think it's important to notice that when Paul mentions this indescribable gift that is Jesus Christ, he's not just talking about the man. He's talking about everything that encompasses the man. Why he came in the first place. The way he lived, the things that he taught, the fact that he died on a cruel cross, the fact that he rose again, the fact that he's coming back. 
all those things. The indescribable gift points to us and what we have gained when we accepted the gift. And the reason I brought this binder this morning is because I can tell you about it, but showing you means more. But even though I can tell you and show you, even though I can let you come up and look through it, it's not going to mean as much to you. It only means as much to us when we internalize it, when we experience it for ourselves. What's so great about Jesus? You ever been asked that question? I have. From someone who knew I was a preacher, and it was asked with a a tone of contempt, yeah, what's so great about Jesus? And at first I thought, well, there are a lot of things. But then you dig into it and you think, well, I mean, it's kind of hard to describe. Because unless you've experienced him for yourself, you can't really know what's so great about Jesus, right? I can tell you that he is our Savior, that he took our place, that he paid the debt that we owed. But until you experience him for yourself, it's almost impossible to describe. In John chapter 7, beginning in verse 40, it says, Some of the people, therefore, when they heard these words, were saying, This certainly is the prophet Others were saying, this is the Christ. Still others were saying, surely the Christ is not going to come from Galilee, is he? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the descendants of David and from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So a division occurred in the crowd because of him. Some of them wanted to seize him, but no one laid hands on him. From the very beginning, it was hard for people to accept Jesus. And it's no different today. Division is still called, uh, caused because of Jesus. There's still division in our world over this man they call Jesus. People esteem him today. Some do not. Some turn their backs on him while others embrace him. One of the most important themes relating to your life or anyone's life, to your eternal destiny, is how you answer the question, what's so great about Jesus? Or we could ask it another way. Do you appreciate the gift? Because that's really what it boils down to. I've gotten some gifts that I didn't appreciate. You probably have as well, right? One year for Christmas, my mother got me a roadrunner. Not a real one. A ceramic one that you stick in your yard. I don't know why. Never once did I ask her, hey, could you get me a roadrunner for Christmas? That never crossed my mind. I opened it and I thought, okay, what is this? Well, it's a roadrunner you can stick in your yard. Oh, yeah, that's going to end up in a garage sale very soon. We've all gotten gifts that we didn't necessarily appreciate. We acted like we were surprised. We acted thankful and grateful. But at the end of it, we're thinking, yeah, I'm not ever going to use this. Whether it was too big or too tacky or whatever it may have been, there are always gifts that we don't appreciate. But Paul says, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. And he's not doing it as a negative. He's not saying, oh, well, thank you. I'm never going to use this. No, he's being very positive. He's saying that we have a gift That is beyond comprehension. Your version may say unspeakable gift. Same thing. Paul is saying that this gift is something that cannot be related to. It's beyond telling. It's inexpressible. And you know that I'm a stickler for context. I don't like to pull one verse out and make it stand by itself. I think we've done that in the church way too much. We practice one verse theology. Take everything in context. And so when we take the context of 2 Corinthians here, we have to look at this in the context of monetary giving because that's what Paul's talking about. He is encouraging the Corinthians to finish what they started. 
The Jerusalem church was the mother church. It's the church that started all of this movement of Christianity and these other churches being planted. However, the Jerusalem church was also a poor church. And the Corinthians had started about a year prior taking up up a collection at the uh, motivation of Paul to help out the Jerusalem church. And now Paul's saying, you need to finish what you started. Talk is cheap and so are you. You You need to finish this and you need to continue your giving. So this exclamation point on his reasoning is, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. In other words, Paul says, you have been given life, surely you can give money. God turned loose of his son, surely you can turn loose of some funds. You can read through 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9 sometime. We don't have time to do that this morning. But you can read through those chapters and you can see that Paul starts with one thing in particular when it comes to giving. As he tries to encourage them to continue their giving, he starts with one thing, and that is grace. And that's an appropriate place to start, isn't it? Because that's always where you start. You always start with God and grace. Christians don't give because they are commanded to or because it somehow frees them from obligation. The free gift of grace given by God through Jesus Christ is all the motivation that we need to give. Our giving is a gospel response. The gospel is all about the generosity of God and living out the gospel is about our generosity to the church and to others, which means that we're talking about more than just money here. Not to get too far off track, but I want to reemphasize something that we've talked about before. If you look at 2 Corinthians chapter 8, starting in verse 1, it reads, Now, brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God which has been given in the churches of Macedonia, that in a great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord, begging us with much urging for the favor of participation in the support of the saints. And this, not as we had expected, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. That last line is what I want you to remember. Because when you give yourself first to God, giving's not a problem. You will give liberally. You will give out of the goodness of your heart, you might even beg or plead to give because you have given first yourself to God. You have given your heart to Him first and foremost. First and foremost, the question every giver must ask themselves is, is my money a God or a tool? And it depends on how you look at the gift, isn't it? How do you look at this gift I would bet that you find glory in giving and you appreciate the gift of God's grace if you've given yourself first to God. But if money is your God, then this indescribable gift seems more like some trinket that gets lost at the bottom of the toy box. I think Paul's point is well made to the Corinthians and hopefully it's well made to us also. Here's his argument. God will take care of you. He's already given everything he had. I mean, if he gave his only begotten son... Won't he take care of the basic necessities of your life? Why would he not take care of you if he gave his only son? You see, when we give, we give insight into our faith. We let people look into our heart. Certainly God is paying attention. Giving is a barometer of our faith. How much do you trust God? Do you truly believe that he will take care of you? Do you truly appreciate the gift that he has given you? And when it gets right down to it, what right do we have to hold anything back? It doesn't become the Lord's money when we give it to the church. It was His to begin with. Everything is His. 
It all belongs to Him. It is only by the grace of God that you have anything, and therefore your giving should be an act of grace, just like God's giving was. Guys, let's assume for a moment that you have a girlfriend and you want to marry her. And so you get down on one knee and you propose and you place a ring on her finger and she is so excited. So excited. Jumping up and down. Showing that ring off to everyone around her. Posting pictures on social media. She is so excited about this beautiful ring. And you're waiting for an answer. Right? Because with that ring came a question. Will you marry me? And she never gives you an answer. She just goes on and on about the ring. For weeks on end, she never even calls you back. She's excited to have the ring. What is your hope? Your hope in giving that ring is that she would love you infinitely more than the ring. That the ring would just be a token of the commitment that you're going to make. That with the ring comes a response, and hopefully that response is, yes, I want to spend the rest of my life with you. You can't put more emphasis on the gift then you do the giver, right? In Luke chapter 17, we see 10 men who are afflicted with the terrible disease of leprosy. And they come to Jesus asking for healing. And Jesus tells them to go and show themselves to the priest. And on their way, they are healed. And how many come back and thank Jesus? One, right? One leper came back to thank Jesus. The other nine missed it. They missed it. It wasn't just about healing. It was about the giver. It was about the gift. It was about the gift of being in the presence of Jesus. It was about the gift of not only healing, but spiritual healing. And they missed it. Are you invested in the blessing or the blesser who gives the blessings? The whole aim of God, the reason he offered this indescribable gift is because he wants a relationship with us. Paul writes this, he says, He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? God will more than provide. You will be taken care of. He sent his only begotten son to die a cruel death on a cruel cross for you. How will he not meet your basic needs? He has shown you that he will take care of you. But throughout Scripture, we find people investing in the gifts more than the giver. Whether it be Solomon, the rich young ruler, whoever it may be, we find this repeated over and over again. People who love the blessings more than the blesser. Look at Luke chapter 14. Beginning in verse 16, it says, But he said to him, A man was giving a big dinner, and he invited many. And at the dinner hour, he sent his slave to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is ready now. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first one said to him, I have bought a piece of land, and I need to go and look at it. Please consider me excused. Another one said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I am going to try them out. Please consider me excused. Another one said, I have married a wife, and for that reason I cannot come. And the slave came back and reported this to his master. Then the head of the household became angry and said to his slave, Go out at once into the streets and the lanes of the city and bring in here the poor and crippled and blind and, blind and lame. And the slave said, Master, what you have commanded has been done. And there is still room. And the master said to the slave, Go out into the highways and along the hedges and compel them to come in so that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste of my dinner. So, 
The master in this parable is obviously God or Jesus. The invited guests are the Jews. They should have been excited to attend the feast, but they made excuse after excuse. They're represented by a man who says, I've got to go and check out a field that I just bought. You would think the time to check out a field is before you buy it. Apparently, he bought it sight unseen. So he goes and he checks it out. That's his excuse. Another one says, I bought five yoke of oxen and I've got to go and try them. Again, you would think that you would do that before you bought the oxen. What if one of them only has two legs? You know, you just forked over money for a bad ox. But apparently he needed to go try them. That was his excuse. The third excuse seems to be the most legitimate. How can you argue with, well, I just got married. I want to spend time with my wife. But the problem is they missed it. They missed it completely. It wasn't just about being invited to a banquet. It wasn't just about being able to sit at the table with the master. It was about being in the master's presence. It wasn't about food. It wasn't about the feast. It was about the master himself. It was about being there with him, sharing with him. All of these excuses could be considered legitimate, really, at least on the surface. But at the end of the day, they all missed it. There is a big difference in God as a concept and God as a reality. When God is a concept, you seek to fit him into your schedule. When you have time, when you have desire to think about him, you do so. When you don't, you don't. I like the way Timothy Keller puts it. He says, if God is just a concept for you, you don't have the real God. You have a Stepford God. You have a God that says, yes, dear, whatever you want, dear. You don't have the real God. You just have a God concept. So here's my question. Who rearranges who? What do you place the emphasis on? Is it on the gift or the giver of the gift? Is it the things that you get or is it the person who gives them? Do you fit God into your agenda or does God become your whole agenda. Sometimes our greatest adversaries are our blessings, right? We can say, God, thank you so much for this, this, and this. And if we did an honest assessment, we would have to admit that those things are overriding our relationship with God. Are they really blessings then? Our greatest adversaries a lot of times are our blessings. We all have things in our lives, good things actually, that if we're not careful, they can rob us of a relationship with God. They can override the blesser. Our greatest enemy is the thing that we love more than God, even if that thing is a good thing. For all the ruin that Satan can cause, what often keeps us from the banquet table is a piece of land, a yoke of oxen, or a relationship. The deadliest appetites are not always for the poison of evil, but for the simple pleasures of earth. And if Luke chapter 14 teaches us nothing. It teaches us that the chairs around God's banquet table will be filled. They're going to be filled with somebody. If not you, then someone else. And they will be filled with those who love the presence of God more than the presence that come from God. So, allow me to close with one more question. I'm full of questions this morning. Why do you want to go to heaven? Well, because I want to see my loved ones. Because I want to experience the gates of pearl and the streets of gold. Because I want to ask God why he created mosquitoes. I have all these pressing questions, right? Why do you want to go to heaven? 
If your number one, first and foremost answer isn't God, then you're missing it. Because heaven may be a lot of things, but first and foremost, heaven is a relationship as much as it is anything. What makes heaven heaven is who is there. You and God for all eternity. Conversely, what makes hell hell is who's not there. The one place the omnipresent God isn't is hell. What makes hell is not the licking flames and the fire and brimstone. It's the fact that you spend eternity away from the giver. Why do you want to go to heaven? Hopefully because you want to be with God. And everything else is secondary to that. So live today. Live today like you want to be with God for all eternity. Live for him now so that you can be with him forever. And if we can help you in this endeavor, if we can pray with you this morning, if you need the support of this church family, if you'd like to get baptized this morning, we just redid our baptistry. It looks great. There's plenty of water. Whatever we can do for you this morning, why don't you come as Don leads us in a song.